With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. This is Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Today is Wednesday the 15th of November and welcome to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, the voice of sanity. This is your World News Hour here on TNT. In today's program, we'll have the latest from the crisis in Gaza, including how the United Kingdom Foreign Office has failed to honour one of its own. Also today, Ukrainians must decide whether to flee the war zone in the east of the country or stay put with families divided. Negotiations are underway in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, on the world's first plastic pollution treaty. And the International Monetary Fund has launched its guide to central bank digital currencies. But first, the other stories making the headlines as we go around the compass. U.S. President Joe Biden meets Chinese leader Xi Jinping for the first time in a year today for talks that may ease friction between the two adversarial superpowers on military conflicts, drug trafficking and artificial intelligence. However, deep progress on the vast differences separating the world's economic superpowers may have to wait for another day. Officials on both sides of the Pacific have set expectations low as Biden and Xi are set to discuss Taiwan, the South China Sea, the Israel-Hamas war, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, North Korea and human rights, each of them areas where the leaders have been unable to resolve long disagreements. Biden and Xi arrived in San Francisco on Tuesday, where they were set to hold their meeting on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. Leaders from the 21-member country group and hundreds of CEOs in in San Francisco to court them meet amid Chinese economic weakness, Beijing's simmering territorial feuds with neighbors, and a Middle East conflict that is dividing the United States from its allies. Efforts to carefully choreograph Xi's visit may be upended in the restive Northern California city, despite efforts to drive homeless people from the streets. The route from the airport to the conference site was lined with demonstrators, both for and against China's ruling Communist Party, an unusual sight for Xi, who last visited the United States in 2017. Biden has sought direct diplomacy with Xi, betting that a personal relationship he has cultivated for a dozen years with the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao Zedong might salvage bilateral ties that have been turning increasingly hostile. Xi and Biden are expected to meet far from the conference location at a vast estate miles outside of San Francisco, carefully chosen for its security, serenity and remoteness. The table has been set over the course of many weeks for what we hope will be a very productive, candid, constructive conversation, said John Kirby, the White House spokesperson, speaking to reporters traveling aboard Air Force One. Pope Francis has called on the faithful to pray regularly for peace in Ukraine, the Middle East, Sudan, and all other war-torn places. 
Let us pray, brothers and sisters, for peace in a special way for martyred Ukraine. It is suffering a lot. And then the Holy Land, Palestine and Israel. And let's not forget Sudan. Francis was speaking during his weekly audience in St. Peter's Square this morning. Let us think about all places where there is war. There are many wars. Let us pray for peace. Every day someone should take some time to pray for peace, he added. The Vatican has offered to mediate in both the Russia-Ukraine and Israel-Palestine conflicts, but its efforts have so far not been successful. The Pope's plea comes after at least one person was killed in an overnight Russian missile strike on a town in eastern Ukraine, authorities said this morning. Rescuers were searching through the debris of a wrecked building for survivors after the attack on Selidov, northwest of Russian-occupied Donetsk. National police said four S-300 missiles struck shortly after midnight, killing one person, wounding at least three and damaging six apartment buildings and 20 homes. Five people, including a child, were rescued from one building that had been heavily damaged in the attack. Local officials in a separate telegram statement said four other people are believed to be trapped under the rubble. Many Ukrainian families are now having to choose whether to stay put in the war zone in the east or flee to safer areas, as we can hear now in this report from Reuters. I have never left Toresk. It is my first time. This is what 11-year-old Denis Skachkov was saying as he and his mum Olha Skachkova climbed out of an armoured van. They were whisked out of their hometown in Ukraine located close to the front lines where Ukrainian and Russian forces are fighting. The mother and son were evacuated to a shelter in the Donetsk region, about four miles from fierce battles. It was then that Skachkova took off her son's protective vest. My child started to feel very scared. He was very nervous and worried. He was frightened. So I decided to go. Skachkova's mother, who was 69, stayed behind. She said she did not want to be a burden. Moscow denies targeting civilians, but the UN Refugee Agency says about 5 million Ukrainians have been internally displaced by Russia's invasion. Many are from Donetsk region, which has been hit harder by fighting than any other province. Tetiana Sherbak left the eastern city of Bakhmut in February, a city that fell to Russian forces after some of the fiercest and most deadly clashes since Russia's full-scale invasion in February 2022. She has helped to run this shelter since March and estimated that about 700 people have passed through its doors. Families with children usually stayed for a few days, she says, while older evacuees were harder to find permanent homes for and sometimes stay for months. The elderly don't want to go anywhere. Many of them want to be near the cemetery, as they say, near their relatives. It's important for them. They believe in the armed forces of Ukraine and Salushny, commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian armed forces. They think they will be able to return to their homes. 
For 76-year-old Yulia Nakanova, who was evacuated from Bakhmut, it was a matter of life and death. She was struck in the hand sniper. by a sniper's bullet and lay wounded for three days. The Ukrainian soldiers who rescued her told her she would have died had she stayed another two days. Nikonova's roommate Maria Maliarenko, a native of the frontline town of Chazovyar, said leaving her apartment was a tough choice even after the windows and doors had been blown out by shelling. I never thought I would leave. I thought, let me die here. But you can't survive without other people. If there is no one there, there was a huge crater from a bomb and the buildings nearby were burning. Sound of Russian jets there in that report from Reuters. Anti-junta fighters in Myanmar's Chin state are trying to gain control of part of the Boris border with India after taking over two military outposts on the mountainous frontier. A rebel commander said this is part of a wider offensive against the junta. Dozens of rebels battled the Myanmar military from dawn to dusk earlier this week to overrun two camps next to India's Mizoran state. The Austrian National Front's Vice Chairman Su Kui said. Spokesperson for Myanmar's military and India's foreign ministry did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Myanmar's generals are facing their biggest test since taking power in 2021, after three ethnic minority forces launched a coordinated offensive in late October, capturing some towns and military posts. The military-appointed president last week said Myanmar is at risk of breaking apart because of an ineffective response to the rebellion, the most significant fight back since the 2021 coup which deposed the democratically elected government of Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi. Also in the Far East and the Cambodian government has been accused of using direct and subtle threats to evict thousands of families living near the Angkor Wat UNESCO World Heritage Site. The report by human rights group Amnesty International concluded international law has been breached. A government spokesperson said that was not right and insisted the relocations are voluntary. Details now in this report from Al Jazeera. The temples of Angkor celebrated around the world and a source of national pride to many Cambodians. The 12th century site attracts tens of millions of visitors every year and at its pre-COVID-19 peak generated hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. But the Cambodian government says the maintenance and protection of the temple complex requires it to move people further away. That's been happening since the beginning of the year, often under military supervision. We lost everything in the relocation. We don't have any hopes left. We owe the bank and we still have to repay every month. It's very hard to accept. Many of the relocation sites are barely habitable, barren stretches of land with no water, sanitation or housing. 
We found that a lot of them were threatened by local officials, being forced to move, uh, were told that they would um, not receive any compensation, there would be power cuts, flooding, and some were even threatened with arrest. Angkor Wat has been a World Heritage Site for 30 years, and Cambodian officials have used that status to justify the relocations, a claim that UNESCO denies. But Amnesty's calls for UNESCO to intervene have so far gone unanswered, as did Al Jazeera's invitation for the agency to comment on this report. The temples have rarely benefited those who live in its shadows. The province of Siem Rip is one of the poorest in Cambodia. Half of its population exists on 75 cents a day, with few rewards from the treasures of the past. Tony Cheng. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll have the latest from the Middle East. We'll be right back. TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. More and more, we're seeing Netflix documentaries which are completely fictional, or at least in large part fictional, and they're being portrayed as historical fact. Poll after poll after poll shows that young people, who by definition have no historical context, believe that what they see is what actually happened. And this goes well beyond Hollywood movies with their classic, based on a true story, disclaimer. These are actual documentaries, or at least they're put out as being actual documentaries, when in fact they're not. A documentary sticks to the facts. That's part of what being a, a documentarian is all about. It's not opinionaries. It's not conjecturaries. It's documentaries. And more and more, we're seeing that these documentaries aren't documenting facts. They're documenting the documentarian's political interpretation of facts while completely omitting facts that disagree with their chosen narrative. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours, where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk This is Compass with Basil Valentine on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Without warning, Israeli warplanes this morning bombed a shopping centre in the central Gaza Strip, resulting in more than 10 people being killed and dozens of others wounded. Israeli forces have also raided the Al-Shifa hospital, where thousands of Palestinians are sheltering following days of heavy attacks in the area surrounding the complex in Gaza City. Israel's military said early this morning that it is carrying out an operation against Hamas in a specified area at Al-Shifa, calling the assault a targeted operation on Gaza's largest medical facility. It said the raid is based on Israeli and United States intelligence. Israel accuses Hamas, the group that governs Gaza, of using the hospital as a base. Hamas rejects the claim, and Israel has not produced evidence to back up its assertion. Dozens of Israeli soldiers entered the facility this morning while tanks were stationed in the yard of the medical complex. 
Al Jazeera's Tarek Abu Azum reported from Khan Yunis on Wednesday that the raid is considered to be very risky and dangerous, as inside the hospital there are around 7,500 Palestinians, including patients, doctors and displaced people, sheltering from the bombardments, he said. Dr. Munir al-Bush, the general director of hospitals in the Gaza Strip, told Al Jazeera that Israeli forces searched the basement of Al-Shifa and entered the surgical and emergency buildings within the complex. Dr. Ahmed al-Mokabalati, a surgeon inside the facility, reported heavy gunfire and explosions could be heard in the compound. We saw the Israeli tanks and the bulldozers on the center's campus, he told Al Jazeera. About 700 patients remain at the hospital, including about 100 in critical condition and many children. Mokalalati reported that more than a 1,000 medical staff are also trapped on the site, but are unable to treat patients due to a shortage of medicine and fuel. Israel is attempting to ethnically cleanse northern Gaza of its indigenous population, but there is nowhere for them to go, as we can hear now from Basma Galayani, on Good Morning Britain. We we are fortunate enough to happen to be dual nationals and have the option to leave if we want to. There's two million people who have nowhere to go and don't don't really want don't at all want to leave their homes. They have no options. This has been going on for decades and this kind of um this kind of treatment, the, the Israeli occupation has has been going on for a very, very a very, very long time. And people have been suffering siege over siege assault over assault. And those are the bigger things that people are going through, the Palestinians are going through, that are being subjected, they're being subjected to by these Israeli um, forces. You say it's been going on for decades. And of course, there's a, you know, there's a hugely difficult history here. Mm. But what is happening now is because of what happened on October the 7th, the Hamas terror attack on Israel and 1,400 people murdered and more than Mm -hmm. 200 hostages taken. What is happening now is uh, an extension of a very slow, systematic, unreported ethnic cleansing that has been happening since 1948. Things that what is happening now didn't start on the 7th of October. It started in, in 1948, in May 1948. And it was happening very slowly. And what happened on the 7th of October only escalated Israel, Israel's already established ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians. I mean, that's, I understand that that is your perspective. It's a very sensitive phrase to use. I mean, Israel is a state, a legitimate state that has a right to defend itself and suffered a heinous terror attack. And nobody, nobody wants to see the scale of horror that is going on. So, so the word the word defends itself is is an oxymoron in itself. Israel is an occupying force in in the Palestinian territories. So when you're an occupying force, you can't really defend yourself because you're the attacker. They're they're an illegitimate of occupation. Of course, is, you know Israel's answer to that would be it had withdrawn from Gaza. It was it never withdrew no, from Gaza. Okay. It's still occupying. It. The Intercept reports that the United Kingdom government has refused to condemn Israel's targeted murder of Dr. Maisara Aureyes, a Palestinian alumnus of the British Foreign, British Foreign Office's own prestigious Chevening Scholarship Programme. Meanwhile, London has instructed media outlets to keep silent about its direct involvement in the Gaza slaughter.
Since the beginning of Israel's military assault on the besieged Gaza Strip, the British government has remained unflappably silent on the carnage inflicted on Palestinian civilians, with one notable exception. On November the 8th, the Foreign Office announced the death of Dr. Maisara Al-Reyes, a Palestinian alumnus of the Chevening Scholarship Team, under which outstanding emerging leaders from all over the world can pursue all-expenses-paid master's degrees at prestigious British universities. The Foreign Office refused to state the cause of Dr. Al-Reyes's death, provoking a wave of condemnation. Meanwhile, King's College London, where in 2019 Al-Reyes studied women and children's health, issued a brief statement stating that he and his family were killed, though it refused to name the perpetrator. The college noted that his work had been published in a number of high-profile journals, and he was well-respected and known among his colleagues for his dedication to improving health care for women and children in low-income and war-affected regions. Colleagues of Alreyes subsequently revealed that he and his family had been murdered as a direct result of Israeli airstrikes after spending 30 hours trapped under rubble. In the days leading up to their deaths, the physician texted his former classmates at King's College, telling them, In the last few days, I'm starting to feel more terrified than ever. I imagine myself underneath the rubble, and I have a great fear of staying alive under the rubble. His worst nightmares were realised thanks in no small part to the British government, which ironically sponsored his Chevening Scholarship. The Chevening Scholarship is considered something of a crown jewel in Britain's soft power arsenal and a vital mechanism for promoting her interests abroad. Over 15 Chevening graduates have gone on to become heads of state and London is keen to promote the success of alumni the world over. The murdered Al Reyes met his fiancée, also a Chevening scholar, while studying in Britain, and London was particularly enamoured with his example. As recently as September of this year, he was among a select group of graduates granted a meeting with Foreign Secretary James Cleverley in Jerusalem, but British leaders failed to provide Al Reyes with even the slightest measure of protection when the brutal bombardment of Gaza began this October. While sleeping in his home with his family, he became a target of the Israeli military. In death, he has become a public relations problem for the British Foreign Office that once sponsored him. When grilled about Al Reyes's murder by ITV, the Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly half-heartedly mumbled, every loss of life is heartbreaking, and there are people, both Palestinian and Israeli, who have lost their lives. That is why we are so focused on getting humanitarian aid into Gaza. In every way, Al Reyes's horrific death is a nightmare for London, not least because the British government may itself be somehow implicated. Analysis by Declassified UK indicates that since October the 7th, at least 33 military transport flights have travelled to Tel Aviv from Britain's vast airbase in Cyprus. The outlet could not find records of similar journeys before the attack on Gaza began. A Ministry of Defence spokesperson denied the freight planes were ferrying lethal aid, but that they supported diplomatic engagement. This explanation is rendered all the more dubious, given that in late October, 
the Defence and Security Media Advisory, DSMA Committee, wrote to the editors of major British news outlets to demand that they not report on British special forces deployed to sensitive areas of the Middle East. The SMA is a Ministry of Defence body that imposes a very British form of censorship on the press. It brings together representatives of the intelligence and security services, military veterans, high-ranking government officials, press association chiefs, senior editors and journalists. So together they decide what issues related to national security can be reported on and how they can be reported. It creates a situation in which the overwhelming majority of British national security journalism is directly influenced by the state. The committee's recent intervention was spurred by media reports of the SAS being stationed in Cyprus to assist with hostage rescue operations. This was almost certainly designed to explain the presence of British special forces in the region while concealing their involvement in the assault on Gaza, where Al Reyes was murdered. Al Jazeera is reporting from Beirut that Hezbollah is well aware of Lebanon's public opinion on widening the war with Israel for its relentless bombardment of the Gaza Strip since Hamas launched an attack on Israel on October the 7th, and that it has to tread very carefully, analysts say. In spite of Hezbollah chief Hassan Nasrallah's careful mixing of condemnations of Israel with words of restraint in a speech on Saturday, Israel's defense minister issued dire warnings against the Lebanese people. Following that, there was a notable escalation in the attacks, which had started on October the 8th, between the two. Hezbollah launched attacks first at Israeli positions in the Shebar Farms area, which it considers occupied Lebanese land. More now in this report from Sky News. The war in Lebanon is fought amongst the trees and hilltop communities which form the border with Israel. It's a battle of strike and counter-strike, fast growing in intensity, and tens of thousands have fled. It looks deserted. Can't see anybody. See if we can find the, the local priest. A small number remain, including civilians in a Christian village called Alma al-Shab. We couldn't find the church, but we did find Milad Eid. What's it been uh, like today? It was very worse. It's getting it's, worse. Oh, my God. Mr. Eid runs the local guest house, seen here, but at least it hasn't been hit. Well, here, you can see the roof yeah. over there. And all the glasses get. Even we have there, all trees are get burned. Israeli fire has smashed into outlying districts where factions like Hezbollah have been launching their rockets. In response, Israel has tried to wipe out their cover, according to villagers, trees destroyed by artillery fire and white phosphorus. It's quite a sight, uh, acres and acres of burnt land, olive trees, fruit trees, and there's a cliff behind it. It's blackened. It's olive harvest time as well, but they won't get anything from these trees. And the tank, you can see the tank from here. The sense of the dread never leaves. The water tank. A shell has punctured their water tank. The tank over there. Yeah, I can see it. And there's a constant whine in the air. 
That's the sound of a drone. It's very loud, and there are aircraft as well. You know the Israelis are here. It's, it's just that they're above us, but it's, they certainly make their presence felt. Its remaining inhabitants now gather at the local shop. But I tell you, we are not afraid, we are afraid. You won't know. You won't know what's happened. Maybe now we shall come here, who knows. Mr. Consul says they're caught in the crossfire of someone else's war. This, this, this battle, does it feel like it's We have nothing war? to do with it. You know, this is the problem. Nothing to do with this war. But actually, it's happened. What can you do? This is the church, the village church. The door's open. Hello. Monseigneur? We found him outside. Father Gaffari leads a congregation of a hundred, but there's only six left now. It's not easy to live. We must stay. I'm not suicidal. But the situation is bearable. If we leave our village, it could turn into a battlefield. Hezbollah is increasing its operations. The Israelis have threatened an unimaginable response. The residents of the village say it's like living on top of the volcano. John Sparks, Sky News, Alma Al-Shab. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, how APAC toppled George Bush the first. We'll be right back. I got a news flash for you. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Chinese President Xi Jinping arrived in San Francisco on Tuesday, where he's due to come face to face with President Joe Biden for the first time in 12 months. As calls grow louder for a ceasefire in Gaza, the new Speaker of the US House says the idea is ridiculous. And Finland is gearing up to close its border with Russia as it seeks to prevent a repeat of the 2015 migrant crisis. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. And welcome back to Compass with me, Basil Valentine, today, Wednesday, the 15th of November. The current conflict in the Middle East has unearthed numerous aspects of the situation there previously unknown by Western audiences. For example, the role of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or AIPAC, and how it has been able to influence US policymakers right up to and including the president himself. One former POTUS to feel the wrath of the Israel lobby was George Bush the first, as we can hear now in a post created by US Senate candidate Sam Parker on the X platform. Here's five times APAC insiders got caught admitting how they control American politics with money. Number three, caught on tape. In 1992, then APAC president David Steiner was caught on tape bragging that he, quote, cut a deal with the George H.W. Bush White House to give Israel $10 billion in loans, $3 billion in military aid, 
and quote, almost a billion dollars in other goodies that people don't even know about. And during the current fiscal year alone, and despite our own economic problems, the United States provided Israel with more than $4 billion, nearly $1,000 for every Israeli man, woman, and child. When Bush actually stood up against the lobby and delayed giving Israel the $10 billion loan guarantees in an attempt to force Israel to enter a peace conference with the Palestinians, AIPAC fought back. I'm up against some powerful political forces. The President of the United States described himself as one lonely little guy compared to the power of the Israel lobby. I heard today there were something like a thousand lobbyists on the Hill working the other side of the question. We got one lonely little guy down here doing it. Although Bush was successful in getting Israel to enter the peace conference, Bush's Jewish backing took a nosedive, and AIPAC's President Steiner was recorded saying he helped raise millions of dollars for the candidate who would go on to replace Bush, Bill Clinton. Ever since Clinton defeated Bush Sr., no American president has ever challenged the billions of dollars we give Israel in foreign aid every year, despite Israel's consistent violation of international law. Soldiers open fire, killing more than 50 Palestinians, including eight children. That was over 30 years ago from George Bush I, and now U.S. foreign policy makers appear to make little, if any, effort to rein uh, from George Bush I, and now U.S. foreign policy makers appear to make little, if any, effort to rein in the Israeli war machine, as we can hear now from Colonel Douglas McGregor. What Biden has done, and I think really Biden is a, sort of an afterthought, I think it's Blinken and Sullivan, and their powerful forces behind them have essentially opened the cage door and let the tiger out. The tiger is called Netanyahu, and the tiger has determined that it must devour everyone and anyone in the neighborhood that it dislikes or considers a threat. We don't know what to do about that. And the reason we don't know what to do about it is that everyone in this government, in Washington in general, lives in fear of the Israel lobby, in fear of what could be done to them here politically if they stand up and say, well, enough's enough. There are limits to our support. There are limits to our tolerance. If Richard Nixon were the president, Eisenhower were the president, I think even someone like LBJ, probably Carter, ultimately would have stood up and said, either you stop what you are doing right now, or we will withdraw our forces, i.e., we'll simply withdraw the naval power in the region. That would ultimately get Mr. Netanyahu's attention. But the Israeli influence and Mr. Netanyahu's personal power and authority at this point is so great that everyone is afraid to contradict him. And so it really doesn't matter what Mr. Blinken says in public. The truth is Mr. Netanyahu is in control. He's not only in control of his destiny, he controls the destiny of American national power, prestige and influence in the region. To Africa now, and in particular Kenya, where villagers are being forced to flee their homes in the Boney Forest area after renewed attacks by Al-Shabaab militia groups, as we can hear now in this report from Al Jazeera. Pamela Ogutu watched her 19-year-old nephew being hacked to death and her home burned down. The attackers said they were from the armed group Al-Shabaab. Several other people who lived in this village near Boni Forest in Lamu County were also murdered in June. Even now, I feel very bad because I saw the Kijana slaughtered 
he was breathing like a bull slaughtered Samuel Chomba is buried here. He was also killed on that day in June. These are not isolated cases. Security forces are struggling to deal with the fighters who are said to be hiding in the forest. They've carried out attacks on civilians and security personnel. The government launched a military offensive against Al-Shabaab in 2015. That's ongoing. State officials say some gains have been made, but the forest is vast, thick, and extends to the border with Somalia. It's a very, very organized group that can carry out uh, such brazen attacks on our, on our main road, unless we place security in every homestead. It is also quite a challenge, even for the security to provide uh, adequate security. The worst attack happened nine years ago. More than 50 people were killed in a town near the forest. These are names of people who were killed in an attack in the town of Mpeketoni in 2014. Al-Shabaab claimed that attack and we've been talking to relatives who come here often to pay their respects. We've also been talking to villagers who live in other areas farther away and they say they continue to live in fear because attacks there are still ongoing. So now Pamela Ogutu and her neighbors sleep rough in this school. Most of the 2,000 or so people who called this place home have fled to other areas. They say until they feel safe enough, they won't come back. Catherine Soy, Al Jazeera, Lamu County, Kenya. Also from Kenya, President William Ruto said negotiators working on the world's first treaty to curb plastic pollution need to hurry up and strike a deal. Uto was speaking at the start of talks in Nairobi. The world produces about 400 million metric tons of plastic waste annually, and less than 10% of it is recycled, according to the United Nations Environment Programme. At least 14 million metric tons ends up in the ocean every year, the International Union for Conservation of Nature says, while more piles up in landfills. Details now on the talks from CGTN Africa. The task of creating the first global legally binding agreement on plastic pollution on land and in the oceans falls on the UN Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee on Plastic Pollution. The meeting's host says it has been actively addressing the issue of plastic pollution. Kenya outlawed the production, distribution and use of single-use plastic bags in 2017. President William Ruto says those working on the pact should strike a deal soon. As we begin this third session of the Intergovernmental Negotiating Committee, I urge all the negotiators to recall that 2024 is only six weeks away and only two other meetings to go. I reiterate my confidence in your ability to get this done to repay the faith humanity has placed on you to deliver this moment in history, to chart a path forward for the planet and people against one of the biggest threats we have ever faced. Change is inevitable. 
this treaty, this instrument that we are working on is the first domino in this change. So this is an opportunity to completely discuss all the issues that we need to be discussing for having a text, as you know, the mandate is for having a text at the end of 2024. I hope that uh, the spirit of uh, Nairobi, which is, was here where we adopted the, the resolution, UNEA 514, which started this whole process, will help us to find ways to find common solutions to this urgent problem of plastic pollution. I want to emphasize, as I did in my opening speech at the, in the plenary, that the life cycle element is crucial. This instrument is not about recycling and improving recycling. This instrument is not just about uh, waste management or cleanups. It is about a complete rethink on how we use plastics. We need fewer virgin materials. We need to reduce the unnecessary and eliminate the unnecessary. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, ominously, the International Monetary Fund has launched its own guide to the introduction of central bank digital currencies. We'll be right back after this break. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Who says legislation isn't a contact sport? We nearly came to blows today in the United States Senate as Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma squared off against Sean Butterbean O'Brien, the general president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. O'Brien had been very critical of Mullen on X, tweeting, greedy CEO who pretends like he's self-made. Just a clown and a fraud, always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy. Mark Wayne Mullen read that tweet and said, here is a place. Not now is a time you want to go? And Butterbean said, let's go. Cooler heads like Bernie Sanders intervened. They weren't going to come to blows anyway. This wasn't quite the caning of abolitionist Republican Senator Charles Sumner by pro-slavery Democrat Senator Preston Brooks of South Carolina in 1856, but it was good to see a Republican show a little spine, show a little enthusiasm for his position. Now, if we can only get Mark Wayne as focused on election integrity efforts and on budgetary issues as he is on posts on X. For MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Challenging the consensus and debunking the narrative, this is Viewpoint. Governments around the world are wasting billions of dollars in carbon capture and storage. Such programs oppose the benefit of enhanced photosynthesis for a greener world and improved crop yields. Much of the funding goes to geosequestration, which requires vast amounts of energy to pump carbon dioxide deep underground into geological formations. It would be better described as oxygen burial, given oxygen makes up 73% of the mass of carbon dioxide. For most of the last 600 million years of life on Earth, atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration exceeded 1,000 parts per million. And for much of that time, including when the dinosaurs roamed it, it was over 2,000 parts per million. Today, it is only about 415 parts per million. Burning fossil fuels liberates carbon back into the atmosphere from which it came. I'm Naheem Hines, professional football player and proud supporter of the Muscular Dystrophy Association. 
My mom was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy when I was 14, and I watched her struggle. But MDA helped her get the best treatments and care, and they also help kids like my buddy Ethan. My name is Ethan, and I'm 12 years old. Thanks to the Muscular Dystrophy Association and people like you, I have more hope than ever before. From day one, they've treated me like family at my local care center. MDA is the only one that funds over 150 care centers across the U.S. to help provide state-of-the-art care for adults and kids like me. For over 70 years, MDA has been transforming the lives of people living with muscular dystrophy, ALS, and other related neuromuscular diseases. They fund the research for breakthrough treatments, care, and cures. And MDA provides support to thousands of families like mine and Ethan's in communities like yours. Thanks to MDA, kids and adults can live life to its fullest. Join us and learn more at MDA.org today. Basil Valentine and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. A high-ranking Colombian police official has said rising use, low production costs and logistical advantages could eventually lead drug producers to focus on fentanyl instead of cocaine. But for now, cocaine remains that country's top drug export. Rocketing consumption of the synthetic drug fentanyl in the United States has led some, including Colombia's President Gustavo Petro, to forecast declines in cocaine production in the Andean country, the world's leading producer. Cocaine finances left-wing guerrillas and criminal gangs, fueling the country's internal armed conflict of almost six decades, which has left more than 450,000 people dead. We're very committed to the work we're doing with seizures, targeting production, because the illegal drug industry certainly continues to be seen as an attractive criminal income, said General Nicolas Zapata, Deputy Director of Colombia's National Police. Petro recently said that higher fentanyl consumption in the US and its expansion to other geographies, including Europe, could discourage cocaine production and open a window of opportunity for peace as the country's illegal armed groups abandon the industry. Crops of coca, cocaine's main ingredient, rose 13% last year in Colombia to hit a record 2,300 square kilometres, while its potential cocaine production rose 24% to nearly 1,800 metric tonnes per year, according to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. Coca production is taking place in new areas and fresh trafficking routes are opening up, said Zapata. Ecuador has become a major stepping stone for exporting Colombian cocaine, according to security forces, and Ecuador's incoming president, Daniel Noboa, who takes office this month, has promised to confront rising crime in the country, where violence linked to drug trafficking has increased sharply. Colombia hopes to destroy 200 square kilometres of coca crops by the end of the year, and seize a record 834 tonnes of cocaine. Financial news now, and the United States House of Representatives yesterday passed a temporary spending bill that will avert a government shutdown, with broad support from lawmakers in both parties. The legislation, which would extend government funding through to mid-January, now heads to the Senate, where Democratic and Republican leaders have voiced support. To prevent a shutdown, the Senate and Republican-controlled House must enact legislation 
that Joe Biden can sign into law before current funding for federal agencies expires at midnight on Friday. The 336 to 95 vote was a victory for House Speaker Mike Johnson, who faced down opposition from some of his fellow Republicans in the first consequential vote of his tenure as Speaker. Johnson was elected to the post less than three weeks ago, following weeks of tumult that left the chamber without a leader. With a slim 221-213 majority, he could afford to lose no more than three Republican votes on this legislation that Democrats oppose. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat, said in a statement on Tuesday night after the vote that he was pleased the bill passed with a strong bipartisan vote adding that he would work with his Senate Republican counterpart, Mitch McConnell, to pass it as soon as possible. The stopgap spending bill would extend government funding at current levels into 2024, giving lawmakers more time to craft the detailed spending bills that cover everything from the military to scientific research. Some Republicans on the party's right flank said they were frustrated that it did not include the steep spending cuts and border security measures they were seeking. The bill passed with 209 Democratic and 127 Republican votes, while 93 Republicans and two Democrats voted against it. Johnson's predecessor as Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, was ousted by a handful of Republicans after a similar vote in September that relied on Democratic votes to avert a shutdown. There are more ongoing cross-border central bank digital currency trials with cute names than one can possibly keep track of, such as Cedar, Icebreaker, Jasper, Mariana and many more. But one in particular stands out, the Embridge product. This involves 23 central banks, including the Bank of International Settlements, the official organization for central banks, and is designed to bypass the dollar-based global financial system. It is almost ready to go live. Assuming it meets its target schedule, Embridge is set to become the first functioning blockchain-based payment platform involving official entities. Its nucleus is in Asia, but organizations from all continents are also involved. And while it is unlikely to knock the dollar off its global reserve currency perch, it could nevertheless end up impacting international flows, trade agreements, and the power of sanctions. The development of Embridge comes as the International Monetary Fund has launched its own guide to central bank digital currencies, as we can hear now in this report from Channel News Asia. Countries exploring the use of central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, can now access a virtual guide by the International Monetary Fund. The guide will cover areas like interoperability, financial inclusion and how to onboard businesses. We took uh, the pulse, uh, how many countries are engaging with uh, CBDCs. Over 110 of our members are at some stage of engagement, some quite advanced, some still uh, at the point of uh, exploration. 
The guide was launched at an anniversary event of IMF's regional training center. The center provides government officials with training on economic and financial issues. Singapore's central bank chief Ravi Menon also spoke at the event. There, he outlined risks in today's world and how the center plays a key role in helping member countries with capacity development. Geoeconomic fragmentation, climate change and nature loss, and technological disruption, especially with the advent of artificial intelligence. These are multifaceted issues that require mobilizing and harnessing cross-disciplinary knowledge and expertise. It's no longer purely in the realm of economics. And finally today, a little more background on the Israel-Palestine situation from the Jewish-Israeli dissident Ronnie Barkan speaking on the X platform. Now, Israel is, not, is definitely not a democ the democratic state, but it's also not a Jewish state. Israel is only Jewish in the same way that South Africa was white. It is not Jewish by religion. It is only Jewish by supremacy, by ethnicity. There are many myths that have to be dismantled. One of them is this notion that there are such two entities called Israel and Palestine living side by side in one way or another. But actually Israel was built on top of Palestine and on account of the indigenous Palestinian people. That's how it was founded. So there is no Israel without Palestine. And the very existence of Israelis is on account of other people. Now, we're not saying that they don't have a right to live there, but the, no one has a right to live on account of other people. So what needs to happen in order for Israel to become a legitimate entity, it has to acknowledge the rights of the indigenous people, the ones that have been oppressed and subjugated ever since the creation of the State of Israel. The State of Israel was founded on the basis of ethnic cleansing and ethnic segregation. So its first laws were explicitly racist. There are three laws that explicitly uh, use the term Jewish in order to give privileges to people of my ethnic background and deny the rights of the others. And there are many more laws. Today we have more than 50 of them that are implicitly racist, that depend on these formal laws. And there are many, many more practices that are racist. But by law, there is discrimination. And that legal type of discrimination against an ethnic or racial group is what falls under the legal definition of the crime of apartheid, as defined in the Rome Statute. So Israel neatly falls under the legal definition of the crime of apartheid, which is a very serious crime under international law. It's one of the few crimes that, along with genocide, that uh, is regarded as a crime against humanity. So that is what we mean when we refer to Israel as an apartheid state. Um, now, adding to that, the, Supreme, uh, the Secret Security Service of Israel, the Shin Bet, stated in court that they are monitoring anyone who is acting against the Jewish character of the state, even if they do it legally. So basically, anyone who is promoting democracy, anyone who is promoting equality in Israel, is being regarded as some sort of a security threat to the state. So what does that tell us? And finally today, the UK House of Commons votes on a ceasefire with Keir Starmer, the so-called leader of the Labour Party, planning on censoring any of his MPs who want to stop the slaughter. That's the place we have reached here in the United Kingdom. 
I'm Basil Valentine. This has been Compass today, Wednesday, the 15th of November. I do hope you've enjoyed the programme and we'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Have a great day.